What's up, everybody? Hi. Man. Thanks, Ben. Man. Ben's a good friend. Look at that. That's two nights in a row. Ah. Did we have a good day? Yeah. All right. That's cool. Me too. Me too. Hey, uh, let's recap, shall we? You guys remember what you saw this morning in the skits? Yeah? Okay. We saw some things. You guys remember what we talked about last night? Yeah, yeah. What's that? I went up a hill. Yeah, he remembers that part. Yeah, we talked about last night. We talked about labels, and we talked about some of the things that the world throws at us that are never going to satisfy, that, that ultimately that we are meant to be worshipers. We are designed to be worshipers, but we're meant to, we're meant to worship only the one who created us. And it doesn't matter what the world might try and place on us. If you want to know what something truly is, you ask the artist or you, you ask the crafter that made it. Tonight, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 2 and 3. So if you have your Bible and you want to follow along, you can go ahead and turn there. All right, I'm going to give you guys a little bit of highlights of some of it, and then we're going to read portions of it. So land in that 2-3 range. And while you're turning there, um, about seven years ago, seven years ago, I was sitting on the couch uh, with my son Gunner. He was four at the time. And we were watching this show called Spartan Ultimate Team Challenge. Anybody seen the show? Okay. If you're unfamiliar with the show, these, these teams of four people would like try and complete this course together. And this course involved like jumping over fire and climbing up ropes and carrying heavy things. All the while, they were running miles to complete this course. And my four-year-old son, Gunner, looks at me and he goes, Daddy, you think you could do that? And I said, oh, for sure. No problem. And then he goes, well, then why don't you? <laughs> and I said, huh. Man, this kid's going to keep me on my toes his entire life, right? So I, look, I looked at my son, and I love a good challenge, man. I love a good challenge. And about three months later, I signed up for my first ever Spartan race. And it was awesome. There's a picture of it right here. Let's throw it on the screen. Bang! Look at that guy. Woo! Look, check that out. That's fire. And I'm jumping over it. If you see in the back... There's a pretty blonde-haired girl with her phone. That's my wife. She's taking a picture of me doing this. So obviously when I saw my wife at the finish line, I knew I had to do something dramatic as I flew across the fire. So I did a toe touch. All right? That's what I'm doing right there. That's not how I jump, in case y'all are wondering. But, um, but, you know, God has a way of humbling people when they do prideful things like toe touches because as soon as I landed, I cramped up in my hamstrings, so I finished like this, you know? It didn't look as cool, but that looks really cool. Um, so this course, Spartan, I did this course. In my opinion, it took me way too long. And so I knew that there were some things that I had to work on. And I was already in pretty good shape at this point, but I was mainly just lifting weights. I really wasn't doing the running thing. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to start doing the running thing. 
And I, I started with a mile, and then I, I started working towards two, and then, and then three. And I tried to improve my pace because, well, I signed up for three more races, all of different lengths. See, Spartan has different lengths of races, or as I like to refer to it, different lengths of punishment. You can, you can use that if you want. All right, different lengths of punishment. It's punishment and fun mixed together. You got it. Anyways, they got different lengths. One of them is a 5K, so it's 3.1 miles. Then the other one is a 10K, so it's 6.2 miles. And then there's another one called the Beast, which is a half marathon. It is 13.1 miles in the mountains with all the natural terrain. And over the course of these Spartan races, there's all sorts of obstacles sprinkled in there just to enhance the fun. Some obstacles you got to carry like a 100-pound sandbag for like a quarter mile. Another obstacle, you got to climb up a 20-some-odd-foot rope and ring a bell. Another obstacle, you got to do these, these it's called a multi-rig with these rings and poles and these ropes with knots on them. And you got you to work your way across it without touching the ground. And here's the best part. If you fail any obstacle, you then are gifted with 30 burpees. You know what a burpee is? <laughs> For those of you that don't know what one is, this is what it looks like right here. One. Okay. All right. See? Woo! That may be the first ever burpee done on the Hume Lake stage. All right, I'm going to look that up. Anyways, I got so into these things, and I, I started to love what Spartan races created in me. And I still do them to this day. I've worked my way up into bigger races, ones that are not just distance but time, where I just go out and run in the mountains with obstacles for six hours or eight hours or 12 hours. And, and, and I, just, I just keep pushing myself because of what it's building inside of me. And the word that we're really going to look at tonight is the word perseverance, what it looks like to operate for a really, really, really long time in a world that seems to be stacked against you, but yet you operate with consistency over a long period of time, not for your own glory, but ultimately for his. And in Daniel chapter 2, my friends, as we saw in the skit this morning, King Nebuchadnezzar has this crazy dream and it's one of those dreams that shakes him to his core because he, he doesn't understand it, but he has this, this inkling inside of him that it's not good news for him. He's his greatest concern, his own well-being, his own rule, his own power, his own authority. And so he comes to all of his, his people that he's appointed, all the Babylonian people that had all these special skills in his kingdom, in his court. And he says, tell me about my dream. And it would have been simple for them to merely hear his dream and then give him their best guess. But he didn't approach it that way. He knew that this dream was different. And he knew, needed to know what it truly meant, not a, not a guess. And so he approached every single one of them and said, you tell me my dream without me telling you what it was about. Which, my friends, is next to impossible. 
And so all of these people in his court, all of these people that he has trusted, they can't come up with any sort of answer. And so he starts to turn to a new trusted person who was taken in exile from Judah, known as Daniel. He tells Daniel the same thing. Tell me what I dreamed. He doesn't give him anything to go on except for the fact that this obviously shook him to his core. Daniel does what Daniel knows to do because obviously this is bigger than what he is capable of. There are times in this world, my friends, where you are going to have to do something that is bigger than what you are capable of. It comes for you as well. I know there's been times in my life where I feel like God is challenging me to do something and it's bigger than what I'm capable of doing. What I'm doing right now is bigger than what I am capable of doing. But yet here I stand because I know I do not stand alone. I know that as, as I have the opportunity to speak, it's not my words, it's his. And that's exactly what I pray before I take any sort of stage. Holy Spirit, come and speak your words because ultimately mine don't matter. Daniel goes away and he prays to his God. He prays to his God that he is faithfully served, that he has his foundation set upon. And God gives him the answer. This is Daniel 2, verse 47. The king said to Daniel, I love this, by the way, King Nebuchadnezzar, pagan ruler, worships a whole bunch of different gods, but doesn't really know Daniel's God. Verse 47 of chapter 2, the king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. See, this pagan king receives something from God, not from Daniel. Daniel's just the vessel. He's the package that it came in. But God spoke through Daniel to this pagan king, and even in his limited understanding, King Nebuchadnezzar sees what just happened and goes, whoa, your God is more powerful than any other God that I have ever heard about. He has this interaction, and this interaction kind of opens his eyes a little bit. See, what Daniel's doing is he's doing what we were all intended to do way back in Genesis when God created in his own image, when he created people in his likeness, we were given a role. We were supposed to be his image bearers. I talked about this a little bit on night one. And really what that looks like is it doesn't mean that we look like God. We have attributes of God. But with this one life that we've been entrusted with, how we are to operate in his design is as if we're holding a mirror. As if we're holding a mirror at a 45 degree angle outward. Not showing ourselves, but showing what comes down from heaven. God reflected off of this mirror and into the world that without him is utterly hopeless. And that's what we're called to do from the get-go. By design, 
is to be his image bearer into a world that desperately needs it. But what happens to us is exactly what happens to King Nebuchadnezzar. He has this interaction that goes, whoa, that's, that's powerful. But then in, in a few short verses later, it's almost as if he takes the mirror and turns it to just simply look at himself. And my friends, it's not unique to him. I know that there's been so many times in my life, although I'm created to be an image bearer, where all of a sudden I just flip that mirror around and I'm just staring at myself as my number one and top priority. See, a few verses later, Nebuchadnezzar, even though he has this cool interaction, he seems to forget that Daniel's God is the God of all gods and the the Lord of all kings. And then all of a sudden he builds this 90-foot golden statue and he puts the word out to all the people in his kingdom that said, hey, when we blow all these instruments and play all these strings, we're going to bow down to this new 90-foot statue and we're going to worship it. And so the news spreads all throughout his kingdom. And there's a few people who hear this news and take issue with it. Why? Because they serve the one true God, and they have their foundation set upon that. It's not something that they do when it's easy. It's something that they do in all circumstances. Why? Because God cares more about our character than he does our comfort. We talked about that last night. My friends, some of you guys in this room are a lot like I was when I was your age. When I was your age, I knew a lot of things about Jesus, but I did not know Jesus. I was a pretty compliant kid, and starting at age five, my parents, they wanted to instill into me some values, some things that would be good for me, and so we started going to church together as a family, and I was a kid that really trusted his parents and loved his parents, and and. At my core, I'm a rule follower, so I went, and I sat, and I heard all these things about Jesus, and about God, and about creation, and about his power, and about his presence, and about the Holy Spirit, and I, I learned all these things, and I had this, this head knowledge, but at my core, I was, I was far too selfish to ever surrender, but I knew how to put on the front, and I knew how to play the game. And I knew how to say the right things and respond the right way so that everyone would look at me as this good Christian kid. But there was a different ruler sitting on the throne of my life. And as I got older, guys, I told you that I got really good at this sport. I got really good at this sport called basketball. And for years, my priority was basketball and what it gained me what I earned from it, and that was people's applause and glory and the fact that people knew my name in my tiny little town of Lodi, California. Basketball's a great sport, but it's a really terrible God, and so am I. And so, Daniel and his buddies, in chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar hears that these guys named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are not bowing when they blow all the horns and they play all the instruments. And he's furious. He's so angry. And in chapter 3, verse 13 through 18, this is what it says. 
says, furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I've set up? Now when you hear the sound of all these horns and all these stringed instruments of all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Right here, my friends, these three have a choice to make. Are they going to allow God to be their foundation? Are they going to stay the lane and stay faithful to this God that they have walked with for so many years? Or, in the face of certain death, are they going to crumble and are they going to bow? says this in 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able. If you have something to highlight that, please do so or write it in your notes. The God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will Deliver us from your majesty's hand. And then I want you to underline this next phrase too. But even if he does not, our God is able to deliver us from your hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. They trust him. When I was your guys' age, I didn't trust him. I knew about him, but I trusted myself, and I trusted my comforts, and I trusted the things that were familiar to me. And I trusted my friends, and I trusted my family, and there's nothing wrong with trusting your family. There's nothing wrong with trusting your friends. But ultimately, he deserves our ultimate trust, our total surrender. The fact that we would lean into him when there are things that we do not understand as a refuge, as a safe house. They trust him, his will, his plan for their lives. And guys, I know what it's like to send up prayers, hoping that God will do something miraculous. And let's be real. A lot of times when I pray those big things where I want God to do something miraculous, it's because things are really, really tough. And in those moments, if I'm being completely honest with you, especially when I was in your seats, I cared more about God's magic or his miracles than I actually cared about God. I would just pray because I wanted him to show up because I knew he was powerful, but I didn't trust him except when there was no other option. From us, trust is what God wants, even when it's really, really hard. I showed you a family picture. You've got to see them running around with me. This is another one. 
I told you I live in the desert. Exhibit A. We're sitting out there. We're sitting out there for our family picture. That's me. That's Shay, my wife. That's Gunner. And that's Cannon. And we have that red balloon there. And that red balloon represents the other member of our family who lives with Jesus. See, about eight and a half years ago, my wife was one week away from her due date, and we were expecting a little girl. And uh, man, I was excited and nervous. I prayed a lot because I'd never raised a girl before, and, and, and really I had no idea what was expected of me or how to do that. And it shook me to my core a little bit, and I prayed to God a lot. Man, help me be the dad that she needs me to be. We go to the hospital for our final checkup, and the doctors are a little bit concerned, so they sent us to, to the emergency room. And uh, I don't know what's going on. I'd never experienced things like this before. I don't really go to doctors. They kind of scare me. And so my wife starts getting hooked up to all these gizmos and, and things, and I knew that these gizmos were supposed to go like this. Beep, beep, beep. And they hook her up, and there's none of that. And I, I'm watching my wife, and she seems peaceful. I'm not peaceful. I'm sitting in a corner. I'm terrified. And I, I start praying, God, let there be a heartbeat. God, sh show up. Let them rearrange the, the readers so that that the thing that's supposed to be there is all of a sudden there because if this keeps going, I know what this means. And I don't like what this means. God, come on, man. Like, we've been praying for this baby for a long time, man. We're excited. We already got the nursery wall painted. It's got glitter on it, man. Like, God, sh show up, man. It, this is my family that's beautiful. I know you love us. I know you're for us. Come on, man. Where, where's the heartbeat? And we get about four minutes down the road. And there's still no heartbeat. And I look at my wife and she's peaceful. I'm like, not peaceful. And then all of a sudden my prayer changes from God let there be a heartbeat to God sustain my family. God, give me the things of you that I need because I know I'm not going to have it. God, work in my life in such a way that, that flows in so that it can flow out so that I can love through this really, really hard thing. Because, God, guys, I knew that I was facing a loss that I was not equipped to face. And my friends, if you remember from night one, I talked about the fact that you sent prayers up. Some of you came up angry and frustrated with God because you sent prayers up to that God and they seem like they just bounced around in the cosmos and you didn't receive your answer. I know that feeling. I've been there. My father-in-law shows up at the hospital. We end up having the baby. Her name's Selah, which means it's in the Bible in two books, in the margins. It instructs the reader to pause and reflect on what they just read. I needed that. I needed to pause and reflect on a God who doesn't just give us the desires of our heart. Sometimes he allows us to walk through these really hard things 
so that he can continue to do a work in us that is greater than what we ever thought. So that he could build this thing called perseverance. My father-in-law shows up and he goes, Kev, what do you need? <laughs> what, an, what a question. What do you need? I said, man, I, I need you to go get the car seat out of my car. Because I didn't know what it was going to be like to walk into that parking lot empty-handed and have to get in the car seat. And the first thing I saw in my rearview mirror was where my baby was supposed to go. It was gut-wrenching. I got home and I was like, I don't, I don't know what to do. God, sustain me. That was my prayer for weeks. I got home and I, I felt this sense that I was just supposed to open his word. And I'm like, come on, man. Reading's already hard. Now you're asking me to do it in this moment like this. And I... I've been a pastor for a long time, and I'm like, what would you say to somebody that's going through something really hard? And I, so all of a sudden, I was like, read the book of Philippians. It's the book of joy. And I need a little bit of joy. If I'm being honest in my life in this moment, I need a little bit of joy, God. So I start digging into the book of Philippians, and then I get to this passage that seems beautiful, unless you're going through something really hard. And then I get to it, and it's Philippians 4, and it's beautiful. It's so amazing. It talks about God and, and how we're supposed to respond to him even when you go through something really, really hard. And in this moment, it's the first time that I recognize the source that allows us to stand on the foundation that is God even in our darkest of hours. Here's those verses. Rejoice in the Lord always. I read that and I'm like, oh, I don't know how right now. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. You know why it's in there twice? Because we needed it. Because there's going to be times in our life where we go through things that are so hard and so difficult that it shakes us to our core. But yet, even in those times, we may need to read it twice, but we are called to rejoice because he's given us so much. Even when we face a loss that is tragic. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. I needed that peace. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. Oh, I was anxious about everything in that moment. But in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Oh, that was a struggle, guys. With thanksgiving. Oh, man. With thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding. That means that we may feel it, but we don't know how and we don't know why. And we, all we know is where and it's from God, but which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I was filled with all sorts of feelings because I didn't know how to rejoice and I certainly didn't know how to be thankful. But I read that and I really wanted that peace. So I'm like, where's the source? Where's the source of that peace, God? Please, because I need it. I prayed for you to sustain me. We faced a loss. It was tragic. God, give me something. Where are you at, man? Verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's noble, <laughs> Whatever's right, whatever's pure, 
whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. The verse doesn't change the trials, but it changes the perspective. Look, anything good comes from him. And he desires for us to trust him in those things that seem good and ultimately those things that seem bad. Because behind it all, he loves us. He desires us. He wants us to trust him. And he has good for us. King Nebuchadnezzar in verse 19, he's really, really mad at this point. He says he was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. His attitude towards them changed, and he ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than it was and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie them up and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent, and the furnace was so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Seems as though it's the end, right? They didn't even get pushed in. They didn't even get placed in because everybody that was holding them died a terrible death and they fell in. The God we serve can save us, but even if he does not, we will not bow to you. James chapter 1 says something about perseverance this way. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. One of the best stories I've ever heard, and I'll wrap up with this, was from a, a pastor named Rusty and his college roommate named Jeff. They were a freshman in their freshman year of college, and, and Jeff was one of the most joy-filled people that Rusty had ever met in his life. And so one day, Rusty just asked him, hey, Jeff, why are you so joy-filled? See, Jeff had gone through something really, really hard. At age 16, he was in a horrific car accident and actually lost his sight. So he had to learn how to do everything all over again. He had to learn how to read without being able to see. He had to learn how to walk without being able to see. And three years later, Rusty would describe him as the most joy-filled person on the planet. And Rusty wanted to know why. Jeff, why are you so joy-filled? Jeff said, you know what? When the accident happened, I was anything but joy-filled. I was mad. I was angry at God. I was angry at my dad. I was angry at my mom. I was angry at anybody who was near me because I didn't know who else to be angry about or to. And Rusty goes, Jeff, this isn't the person that I'm seeing today, so what happened? And Jeff begins to tell him this story. About six months after, he said, I spent my whole six months after the accident in my room. I came out to eat, and I came out to use the restroom, and other than that, I just sat in my room. I thought my life was over, and then my dad had enough, and he flung my door open. And he says, Jeff, I'm going to work. Get up and clean the rain gutters. And they better all be done by the time I get home. And Rusty goes, oh, I get it, Jeff. 
you figured out that you could overcome and that gave you the confidence and the joy to, to do all the things. And Jeff goes, no, that's not it at all. If anything, I was so angry at my dad and I thought, man, I hope I fall off that ladder and break myself even worse and you'll have to live with that your whole life. He said, I heard the garage go up and my dad's car leave. And he said, I fumbled around into the garage and I found the ladder and I started working around the house. Put it up against the house, slowly, carefully, got my way up on the ladder and I started pulling out those leaves. And I just repeated this process over and over and over and over again. And it took hours. It took a long time. And then I got that ladder, made it all the way around the house, put it back up on the hook in the garage, felt my way through the garage, made it back into my room. And right after I did that, I heard the garage go up. My dad got home and his car slid into the garage and it closed behind him. And Jeff's like, I did it. And Rusty's like, oh, I get it. Wow, you did something you thought you couldn't do, and that, that gives you some joy. All right, I see you. Jeff's like, that's not it at all. About an hour later, it was dinner time. And so I fumble my way into the kitchen, and I'm feeling pretty proud at this moment. And I fumble my way into the kitchen, and I hear my dad talking to my mom. And he goes, honey, you should have seen our boy. I came into his room, and I yelled at him. I said, clean the gutters. And then, I, and then I opened the garage, and I pulled the car out of the driveway, but I didn't go far. I just parked it down the street a little bit. And you should have seen him. He came out into the garage, and he grabbed, grabbed the ladder off the wall, and he put it up against the house, and he started working his way around the house. He was pulling stuff. He was pulling the leaves out, and I stood right behind the ladder like this just in case he fell. I had him. I had him in my sights just in case. Man, I was so proud of that kid. Man, you should have seen him. It, did, it wasn't fast, but he did it. He worked his way down, and then he went back up, and he started pulling those leaves out, and I was with him every step of the way. And, I, man, and, then, and then all of a sudden, he was done. He did it. He did it. And, I, and he was telling this story to my mom, and I couldn't see his expression, but I could hear it. And he goes, it dawned on me in that moment that in this life, we will face trials of many kinds, but we have a God who is going to stand behind the ladder of our lives and catch us when we fall. Look, my friends, you are not promised comfort. In fact, God's word promises us something very, very different. But even though it promises us trials, ten times over it promises us a faithful God who desires to walk with us hand in hand and give us strength and give us courage to face the days even when they don't make sense. So my friends, trust him. He's worthy of that. Let me pray. Lord God, you're so good. Uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for the example of three guys that knew you had power and knew you had authority, but trusted you even if it was not your will to save them. Lord God, may you be our foundation so that when the storms come, we're built on that rock to withstand those storms knowing that we serve a God who is trustworthy and faithful. And ultimately, even on the other side of hard things, for us. Thank you, God. It's in your name we pray. Amen.